only source of true delight whom I unseen adore unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more oh that I might love thee more you're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian the following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding Scripture reading this morning is from Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. It's found on page 945 of the blue Bible that's in the pew. Romans 9, verses 1 through 13. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but... Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. If if you could picture going from Romans 8 to Romans 9, uh, Romans 8, at the end of Romans 8, it's one of the the greatest notes of hope, the the greatest celebrative uh, song of hope in the whole Bible. And I want to try to picture for you the movement from uh, 8 to 9. It's as though at the end of 8, the whole crowd is just standing and and cheering the loudest cheers and whistles and applause everything in them just praising god beyond uh, their capacity and then suddenly we see the guy at the front paul and he's just looking straight ahead and he's got a solemn look on his face and he looks like he's staring off into the distance and thinking about something and 
finally all the applause stops and we all take our seats and it's real quiet and Paul starts to say something and he, he drops his head and takes a breath and he starts again and finally says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. That's the feel going from eight to nine. There, there's no grammatical connection. It's, it's not that it's disconnected from the flow of thought. In fact, all of the promises that he's poured out and spoken of that concern those who are in Christ raises this question. If God is... All, all these things that you're saying, this is what he said he would do for Israel. These are Israel's blessing. And if he's pouring out blessing like this, and, and he promises to be our God. I thought he promised to be Israel's God. And look where they are. How, how, how can, what can we make of that? If the God who promised to Israel and yet his own people have by and large rejected his Messiah. How, what sense do we make of this? You and I may just shrug our shoulders and say, well, they didn't believe and, and we're done with them and we're on to the next thing. And it's the church now. But Paul didn't think that way. This is a huge issue. He spends three chapters dealing with the, the issue of Israel and the church. What do we do with Israel? How do we view God's dealings with Israel? And the theme verse for the rest of chapter 9 and for the whole of these three chapters is verse 6. It's not as though the word of God has failed. And by word, he not only means the promise of God, but the purpose behind that promise. God's purpose for Israel and the resulting promise to Israel has not and will not fail. That's what he's going to talk about. And how that purpose and promise spills out is what he deals with beginning verse 6 and on. This is how God has dealt with Israel. This is how we can expect that he will deal with Israel and with the world in general. But he begins with some of the most solemn words in all Scripture. He has this double beginning, not only saying, I speak the truth, but I am not lying. And he underscores the, the solemnity of this by saying, I speak the truth in Christ, I'm dependent upon him. His, I'm under his authority. I'm saying this under his approval. I'm doing this in union with my relationship to Christ. And my conscience bears me witness. Not conscience bear witness to you, but my conscience bears witness to me. This conscience that conscience conscience that's informed by the Holy Spirit. It's by the Spirit, inspired through the Spirit, that my conscience bears witness. This is truly my heart. And he says all of this because he's about to say something that would be hard, that is just hard to believe. And some think that he's giving multiple witnesses here, as in the New Testament, you must have two or three witnesses. He says, okay, here's my witness. Christ, the Holy Spirit, my own conscience that I have this unceasing, great sorrow, unceasing anguish, even to the point that I could be cursed if it could mean that they would come to know Messiah. 
that they could come to know Christ. Those are shocking words. But you can understand the emotion of it. This word anathema, uh, that I would be accursed, is the word used in the Old Testament when cities were devoted to destruction in Canaan. And you, you couldn't get anything out of the city. No animal, no possessions, no people. The whole city was under the judgment of God. It was devoted to destruction. And so he's saying, may I be utterly devoted to destruction. I, I would that that could happen in order that the, my people might know Christ. That they would not be, uh, th- that they might know what I know. These words he uses in Galatians 1. If anyone speaks a different gospel, let him be anathema. At the end of 1 Corinthians 16, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus, let him be anathema. And here he says, oh, I would be anathema if it could mean the the, the salvation of my people. I, I felt that in a small way when my wife's little body was in the middle of the night sick, okay, trembling in the bathroom, you know, because of her sickness. And I remember just thinking... Oh, I wish I could be sick instead of her. I just, this body, half the size of this fat body, you know, <laughs> and, 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 and just the smallness. And, and have you felt this, I'm sure, toward your children? Children are sick and they've got a bad fever and they don't know what to do and they're so helpless. And you would take it away from them, wouldn't you? You'd be sick yourself if you could be. That's Paul's feeling. That's his compassion. That's his love toward them and realize he feels this toward these Jews, these Israelites who were against him. I mean, he had been attacked by them and was going to be attacked by them. And yet he has this kind of compassion. The first thing I want to talk about then, the first really application is just Paul's love and grief this interplay of his love for his Jewish brothers and the grief that he has over their rejection of Christ. He suffered so much for them already at this point. How many times had they already lashed him or been the reason why he was lashed? They were the ones who instigated uh, the, the riots in city after city. Later, 40 of them in Jerusalem would come before the authorities and say, we're not going to eat or drink until Paul is dead. I don't know if they starved to death or finally, you know, began to eat crow, so to speak, but Paul didn't, they didn't kill Paul. But that was their commitment. How could Paul have this kind of love that he would want to sacrifice himself? Well, he would have been, he'd been just like them. He'd been a persecutor of the people of God himself. Jesus was the one, the Lord Jesus, on the road to Damascus who stopped him and said, why do you persecute me? Of course, the shock that in persecuting believers, in persecuting these Christians, he was persecuting the Lord himself. And so Paul now was living out that love that was shown to him. As he had attacked 
and hated the Lord Jesus. And yet the Lord Jesus showed such love that he stood in Paul's place on the cross and bore his punishment. This is what struck Paul. Here he was as a Pharisee thinking that his righteousness was going to help bring in the kingdom. And if he could just get more and more people to be righteous, we could bring in the kingdom of the Messiah. No, the Messiah had to die because I've been so unrighteous. What a shocker. And he shown mercy when I hated him without cause. And so Paul, in turn, loved those who hated him. And he lived out what Jesus said in Matthew 5, that you pray for those who persecute you. You do good to those who do evil to you. Thus you will be like my Father in heaven. You will show yourselves that you really are children of God. You really are like God because He sends rain on those who hate Him and He gives them things every day. He shows mercy and kindness to people who hate Him every day. Be like your Father. Be like your Father. And what's encouraging is this is not just Paul, but this is what He will do for us. This this isn't just a unique thing for an apostle. This is the great thing that all Christians are called to and that Jesus means to do in our lives, to bring about in us this kind of love that no one could expect, that comes out of nowhere, so to speak, out of left field in terms of the circumstance. And yet there is this love that doesn't depend in any way upon the person that we're giving the love to. It's simply because of what God has done in our hearts. But... I want to talk a little bit, too, about the grief that Paul has here. This is, this is the Paul who, in Romans 8, was leading the cheers, right? Leading the chorus of praise, uh, absolute hope. And yet, in the midst of absolute hope and joy, he calls it great sorrow, unceasing anguish. Unceasing. How does that go with rejoice always? Again, I say rejoice. Well, it shows the complexity of the Christian life. It shows the many layers of the Christian life. And in our growing maturity, we grieve when we must grieve and should grieve. And we grieve, though, not without hope. It's interesting in 1 Thessalonians 4, he doesn't say you should never grieve that you're Brothers and sisters have died. He doesn't say that. He doesn't begin to say that. He could have. What are you doing grieving? They've gone to be with Jesus. You unspiritual people. You know, he says, no, I just don't want you grieving like the pagans grieve without hope, without the context of hope. It's interesting when Paul spoke of Epaphroditus in Philippians 2 He says, he's writing this letter and Epaphroditus had attended him in prison. And he said, Epaphroditus was ill. He says, almost to the point of death. And he said, but God had mercy on him. And I love this. He says, and on me also. Because if he had died, I would have had sorrow upon sorrow. You think if he had really been spiritual, wouldn't he have said... And if Epaphroditus had died, I would have said, oh, he's gone to be in a better place with a smile, you know. (laughs) No, 
In that particular instance, he's not thinking about the fact that Epaphroditus is in a better place. Yes, Paul would say, to die is gain, yes. But he loved Epaphroditus. (laughs) He loved him. And so the thought of him being gone, he said, would just cast me into sorrow upon sorrow. Would it be a sorrow without hope? No, but it would be real grief, real sorrow. And Paul felt real, constant anguish over his people's rejection of Christ. Anguish. It's a holy thing to be pained about people. It's a holy thing to be in anguish. For others. Wright and Lewis and many others have talked about uh, grief. And they've said, you know, Christian hope never passes beyond grief. You know, like through grief and now hope is way out here. And it has nothing to do with grief whatsoever. Not to grieve is not to love. Grief is the form of love when the beloved is taken away. That's what grief is. As Lewis talks about, this this is the measure of your love when you suffer grief. And so we we learn just in the way Paul is dealing with this issue, and and this is in the Paul that has such confidence and such hope and is looking forward. But you see, this is also part of the groaning that he talks about in chapter 8. We are in a difficult, hard world with so many things that plague us and hurt us and grieve us. And it's okay. We're real human beings. And that, in fact, I would put before you, that's part of your witness to the world. It's part of your witness to the world that you experience the richness, both in some of its negative side or its difficult side. And in the midst of that, show what it is to live in that richness, to love fiercely and to hurt fiercely and to do so in the context of in the context of a relationship with God, and that you are actually expressing God in this. Because Paul says, I'm telling you this in union with Christ. It's because of my union with Christ that I have this kind of agony for the Jews, for my fellow Israelites. It is in the Spirit that I feel this way. And so we learn that the Christian life is is a many-layered life, a life that is full of the richness of a, a believer's response to the whole of life. And it's all good, though difficult. I've said many times when people will ask how we went through this or that thing, and many times I've said it was terrible and it was wonderful. I don't know how else to put it. I can't. I couldn't say just wonderful. I can't say just terrible. I just say it's terrible. It's wonderful. Now one day the terrible will go away, and God will deliver us. Secondly, we learn from this passage to pray for those who are of the Jewish faith. We certainly learn from Paul the concern that he had for those who are called Israelites. He uses the term that is associated, of course, with Jacob being his name being changed after he wrestled with the angel in 
in Genesis 32, that his name henceforth will be uh, Israel, he who strives with God. And so he's, he's giving them the more religious name. It, there's a change here. Usually when they're talking in political, national context and, and inter, interacting with the world, the word Jew, which comes from Judah, which was the remaining tribe, uh, is used. But here Paul uses this word Israelite. And the pain of it is, the shock of it is, when, when you read so much in the Old Testament that seems so clearly to point to Christ, and when you read Isaiah 53 that talks about the suffering of this one in the place of others, when you see how closely Christ fulfilled the promises, when you see all the, the beauty of Christ tying in with the Passover and the declaration of Him as the one who fulfills these types. It, it just, it's shocking and, and maddening, really. It's been maddening to me at times to think, why, how, how can it be? And yet, of course, as we're going to talk about some, we would be the same. We would do the same. We, we do the same now in the light, full light of, of Christ. We, we reject Him. And the fact that, to begin with, that's all there were, were Jewish Christians, the apostles, and then the 3,000 that were converted on that day. Here are thousands of people who are believers. There's no Gentile among them. It's all Jewish. It's a good start. Maybe it'll continue. And yet, time after time after time, it was the Gentile God-fearers who responded to the gospel, very few, relatively speaking, of the Jews that responded. And so, filled with this agony, constantly praying for them with, with anguish, even to the point that maybe I could even be cursed for the, if, if I could bring it about. And he rehearses their privileges. This, this heightens the agony of it. Theirs is the adoption. He calls them his son in Exodus chapter 4. They call him our father in Isaiah several times. Theirs is the glory, the, the majestic, glorious presence of God was theirs in the wilderness and in the tabernacle and in, in the temple. The covenants were theirs. God's commitment to do them good, to bless them if they would but trust Him. His gracious, glorious law given to them, no one else. They were brought to Mount Zion. All the peoples of the earth, this group of people were brought to hear God's word and to be given, as he says, His worship how we can meet together, how we can fellowship, how we can maintain a relationship. It was called the tent of meeting, the place where you meet with God. It was given to them. And then it begins to really point more and more toward Messiah as if these things didn't. But the promises, the promises that would issue ultimately in Messiah himself, these promises were given to you, to them. And yet, they're, they're refusing the fulfillment of those promises. And perhaps, as he's talk, about to speak of Christ coming from them, uh, the flesh, he goes to the patriarchs to whom Abraham, it was said to Abraham, in your seed, the nations will be blessed. And Paul in Galatians 3 says, seed, singular, Christ. That's what he was talking about ultimately. 
And so perhaps Paul even now is, is you know, building up to this point as he says, the patriarchs were there. The patriarchs to whom were promised in your seed, all the nations will be blessed. The seed has come. The seed has come. Christ, Messiah. And he, he says, and, and he came in Jewish flesh. As John says in John 1, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. And then, how does he describe him? He says, the Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever. Now, the grammar of this verse favors that Christ is the one who's called God. Now, you can punctuate it differently so that it would come out that he is Christ, period, God be blessed, God over all be blessed forever. But actually, the best, the best grammar is that it points to Christ. What has given some people pause is it doesn't fit the context, generally in Paul and in the context right here. But as several have pointed out, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful statement in context. For instance, look a little later in chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. He says, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, he quotes from Joel 2.28. Guess who he's referring to in Joel 2.28? Yeah, Yahweh. Whoever calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. That's translated into the Greek word kurios, which he, he quotes the Greek version of it right here. And so he says, that was addressed to uh, Yahweh. It is now addressed to Yahweh in the flesh. Yahweh who has come to us, who is now Lord of all. And so as he's talking there about the Lord over all, here he's saying he's the God over all. And even... What's behind the scenes here is this section in Romans 9 borrows strongly from Genesis 32, 30, I mean, Exodus 32, 33, and 34, right in here, right at the point where the Israelites had, Jesus, uh, Moses had gone up on the mountain, they had turned to the golden calf, and God is in, and Moses is interceding with God on behalf of the people that have rejected him. And in that intercession in chapter 32, he says, forgive them. And if you won't forgive them, may my name be blotted out. It's striking. There's no way that Paul wasn't thinking about that because that's the whole context for Romans 9. These, these quotes about God's mercy come from that context of, of, in Exodus. And so here is Paul, here, harking back to this amazing revelation of God, unprecedented in the history of the world. And what's the response to it? Rejection in the golden calf. And here's Moses interceding, don't destroy them. Even take my life and blot me out. Now Paul, in the wake of the glorious revelation of Christ and his people are doing it again. He says, may I be cursed if you would save them. You see, all the more would he say the poignancy of this, that God 
who is at Mount Sinai, that Yahweh, that one who is over all, this is the God that has come to them in Jewish flesh, and yet they've rejected him. And Paul didn't use that as a way to look down upon his brethren, you see that? As to say, to despise them, but as a way to feel great agony. Great agony at this tragedy, this greatest of all tragedies, that the very people for whom these things were done by the God who brought them together, these people have rejected Him. And so, have you, do you pray for the Jewish people? It's interesting, as we're going to see in Romans 11, I'll just anticipate this, but Paul says later in Rome, in uh, chapter 11, verse 12, if their trespass means riches for the world. In other words, even though Israel rejected, by and large, not fully, because Paul himself was a Jew, but even though Israel, by and large, rejected Messiah, it meant riches for the world. Paul draws this conclusion If their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? He says, verse 15, If their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? He contemplates, if in rejecting Messiah, this good has fallen upon the world, what will happen? What could happen in the world? There's a whole book written by Ian Murray called The Puritan Hope. The Puritan Hope was the hope of the conversion of the Jews. The hope that if God would do a mighty work among the Jews as a whole, that what Paul says here, Katie, bar the door, what could happen in the world? And so I urge you to share in the agony of Paul, to share in the tragedy of the people of God so-called, but as he indicates, he's theirs according to the flesh. They're my brothers according to the flesh. He's not saying that they have salvation. And so we ask, what would happen? So pray. If you have opportunity for relationships, if you have opportunity for service, if you have opportunity for conversations with Jewish people or those who profess the faith of Jew. Uh, of the Jews, of Israelites. (laughs) Ask God to use you. Thirdly, this passage shows, if any passage, that there are not many paths to God. If there was one other path to God, I imagine most of us would say, well, surely the Jewish path would be that path to God. Now, you may not agree with Paul. I don't know who you are or what you may think. You may not agree with Paul, but you can't read this passage and think that Paul was fine about the Jews rejecting Jesus, that they were going to be okay in the end. Paul was convinced, even to the point of saying, I would even that I could be accursed in order that they could know Christ because he knows they're in danger of that judgment because they've rejected God's Messiah. 
And we must see what this one God has done. This one God has come in the flesh. This one God has borne sin. This one God has stood in our place. He is Yahweh. He says in the Old Testament, there is one Savior. And here this one Savior has come to us. And so, it's interesting that... And I... I, I don't say this because as a feather in the cap of the PCA. I say it to indicate how serious we are or what we think about the world. There are denominations with uh, ten times our numbers, but because they do not believe that people are really lost or that it matters at all, we have more people on the mission field than they do. That's not... It's not great on our part. We need more and more and more. I say that simply for this. We believe people are lost and they've got to have Christ. They've got to have Christ. We don't just, we don't just look and say, it's okay. This is a path to God. That's a path to God. It doesn't matter if that's a whole different idea of God and uh, this is a whole different idea of God. It doesn't matter that they think that the need for God to come or the thought that God would come in the flesh is heinous and abominable. Uh, the fact that God would bear sin is abominable. That's okay. That's a way to God too. It should cause us great compassion, constant prayer on behalf of a world that must have Jesus Christ, that must have the Savior who is not only the Savior for Israel, but He is the Messiah Savior for the whole world. And so, Paul, I mean, uh, I'm sorry, God said to Abram right there in Genesis 12, in this seed that comes from you, indicating Christ ultimately, in this seed all the nations will be blessed. This this, This is the whole source of blessing for the earth. The whole hope for the whole earth is in this one. And we see that reflected in Paul. And finally, this passage, and we begin to talk more as we get into chapter uh, verse six and following, and we'll we'll join six with the next section. But um, it points out the fact that you can have all of the privileges of the people of God. You can have understanding in so many ways. You can have institutions. You can have worship. You can have doctrine. You can have teaching. You can have the sacraments. You can have all of these things and miss everything. This is what Paul is saying. They had this and this and this and this and this. And so this greatest of tragedies can be met by a tragedy of, of just as great a proportion, maybe greater, we would have to say, that we who have heard of Christ, some of us from earliest days would even then still refuse to trust in Christ. And perhaps even think that because we're a part of things, because we go there, because we attend, because we're not watching football on Sunday mornings or whatever it might be, that maybe this is going to be good for something. Missing the heart of everything. And here's the thing. We will abuse all of this in our own sinfulness. 
we will harden our hearts against these things by nature. Even growing up within the church, it's just a new platform, a new context to show just how sinful we are. And that will happen to every one of our children, every one of us, except for the grace of God. That's what Paul is going to say in verses 6 and following. That it has nothing to do with being born into a certain family. Nothing to do with physical descent at all. It has everything to do with God's powerful work in our hearts. It has everything to do with our helplessly depending upon the promise of God. And it's so easy to be a part of things, to be hardened by things instead of softened by the word, to even be skeptical and cynical, to be dull to the sweetness of the gospel, even as we sit and hear it week after week. And so I urge you, I urge you children, say, Lord, deliver me that in hearing the gospel for my whole life that I would be hardened against it instead of drawn to Christ in it. Because you and I will misuse it. You and I will sin against it, except for the grace of God. It's interesting when he talks about promise earlier in Romans chapter 4 concerning Abram. He said, He didn't weaken in faith, verse 19, when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. In other words, promise and faith happens when we, in our helplessness, cannot change ourselves, but we trust in God's promise and His grace. He says He resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And that is the critical thing that we acknowledge. Oh Lord, rescue me. Save me. Keep me from my own sin. Keep me from my own terrible reaction to the things of God. Some of you may be feeling it. I'm sure most of us have to some degree or another how easily we can be hardened against the things of God. Well, here was a whole people hardened to such an extent when this magnificent breaking out of the glory of God occurred infinitely beyond even the glory of Mount Sinai and the glory of the tabernacle. They were blind to it. And so we will be, except for God's grace, but He is powerful to save. His promise is upon us. It is in baptism, it is in the Lord's Supper, His promise to do good to anyone, no matter how sinful, no matter how hard-hearted, to do good to anyone who will trust Him in mercy. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that You would work in our hearts to give us full richness in a hard world. Give us grace to grieve. Give us grace to rejoice. Give us grace to admit and face the terribleness of life. Give us grace to have hope. Give us grace, Lord, to have mercy upon those who do not know Christ. Lord, to be burdened. To cry out as did the one who said, Give me Scotland or I die. The one who 
in the Middle East said, I, I thought that I would die if these people would not believe in Jesus. Lord, we confess to You that these thoughts are too rare. We're concerned about so many other things, that many of which are very legitimate, and we should be. But Lord, give us this kind of heart as You gave Paul. And, and Paul began as a persecutor. He began as a Pharisee who cared nothing for people outside of himself. A man who hated. And yet, here's what the gospel did for him. Here's what Christ did for him. Lord, we in our helplessness give ourselves up to you and say, give us that liberty of love, that liberty to be bound up with the people of the world who don't know Christ. Give us grace to be used in your hands, Lord. And, O oh, Father, deliver us that we will not walk in this pathway of hardening. Lord, we are sinful beyond what we know. We will turn the very best gifts into terrible things except for your grace. And you are eager to pour this grace in the heart of all who come to you. May we be dependent May we be humbled. May we be expectant that our God will save. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times directions to the church and to subscribe to this podcast our web address is fortworthpca.org fort worth presbyterian is a part of the presbyterian church in america jesus my lord my life my light oh come with blissful rain Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away?